Jeremiah chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Let's just look at the first seven verses. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Hear the words of this covenant, and speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And say to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Cursed is the man who does not heed the words of this covenant, which I commanded your forefathers in the days that I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace, saying, Listen to my voice. And do according to all which I command you, so you will be my people, and I will be your God. In order to confirm the oath which I swore to your forefathers, giving them a land flowing with milk and honey, as it is this day. And then I said, Amen, O Lord. Jeremiah's reply. And the Lord said to me, Proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, saying, Hear the words of this covenant and do them. For I solemnly warned your fathers in that day that I brought them up from the land of Egypt, even to this day, warning persistently, saying, Listen to my voice. Father, we come desiring to hear your voice this morning. We have spoken these words so many times, Lord, just as they are spoken many times in your word. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And we ask for ears to hear. We ask for open hearts, Lord, that will receive Your Word in truth and that will be taught by Your Spirit to know the difference, Lord, between that which is true and that which is false. I pray for wisdom in these days, strength for Your people, and above all things we pray, Jesus come. And it's in Your name. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, Paul writes, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? But run in such a way that you may win. He's not saying only one person is going to win. He says run that way. Run with the attitude of a winner. Run with the attitude that says, I will get a, I'm going to break that tape no matter what. I am going home. I am going to be there. I am going to live forever in the presence of Jesus. I will win. Run like that, he says. I've told you before a story of my great victory as a high school sophomore. (laughs) Running the 400 meters in track, breaking the tape, setting a a personal best league record at the time. Thank you very much. (laughs) I could even hear as I came around the final turn, It was awesome. What I haven't told you about was the race that came after. A week or so later. Not on our high school campus in Mission Viejo, California, but down in Dana Point. The Dana Point track, which is up on a bluff above the ocean. Beautiful location. Terrible place to run. Constant headwinds coming at you. I wasn't used to it at all. It blew me away, and by the time I, I mean literally 10 feet out of, the, out of the blocks, I was exhausted. I was spent, and I just watched the race. I don't even think I placed in that race. It was terrible. I was winded. Coming around the first turn and watching the backs of most of the other runners, I'm going, Where, where's my na 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 It was gone. And I lost that race. And I tell you that because... There are often times in our spiritual lives where we're running the race for Jesus and man, we feel like we're winning. 
We have days when our heads hit the pillow and we go, today was a good day. Today I won. Today I saw someone give their life to Jesus. Today I took a step forward in, in, in by, the, by the Spirit, conquering some old thing. Today I, I experienced the healing power of God. What a day! Victories! And then it seems like so often we find ourselves in the next week or two coming around the turn and we're just exhausted. And we're just winded. We're just tired of the whole thing. And my question to you all this morning, and what I want to think through a little bit, is how do we stay on track until Jesus comes? As I said, I I intended to end the study on Wednesday night in Jeremiah. I actually cut it short. I was going to do five chapters, or ten or twenty, whatever I felt like, but cut it short down to just three chapters. So that I'd have time at the end to, to share a little bit something that had, had come up, had come up this last week, something that was on my heart. I know it's dangerous when I do that. But I uh, ran out of time anyway. So this morning I want to come back to this and think this through with you. Paul said to uh, Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. So let's get something out on the table right now. Let's be absolutely clear. Only the gospel is the gospel. Only God's word is the word of truth. And accurately handling the word of truth means just that. It means that we know the truth as revealed in Scripture and not as sometimes or often twisted by man. I think of Paul's tearful uh, farewell address to the church at Ephesus. And what Paul shared back this 2,000 years ago, listen to these words, he said to the elders there, Acts 20 verse 28, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. He says, and from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Listen to those words. From among your own selves. We talk about a lot about the, the assault on the church by culture. And, and culture trying to push things and change things and alter things. And it's always one thing after another. And just when we feel like we fought one battle or perhaps one, run, one, run, one race, we're into another one. And culture's come up with a whole new way to twist and distort truth and to try and, and, and fight against the truth of, of Jesus. But within the church itself, danger can arise. And often does. I think that's the most stunning to us because we just don't see it coming. We sit down with brothers and sisters in Christ, we talk to those who claim Jesus, and we just assume, oh good, I can, I can relax because you and I were on the same page. But things arise within the church. There's a global church movement. It's come to Anacortes. I'm not sure if it's in Oak Harbor. I haven't really heard, but this last week heard about in Anacortes. It is not a church. It's not a brand new church that's been planted. It's a movement that is getting into churches. And it's called Christian terraforming. And I don't know if you've even heard about it. I hadn't heard about it a week ago, two weeks ago. I didn't, hadn't heard what this was. Christian terraforming. Leaders Scott and Sherry Norville claim to have been given a new, never-before-understood final revelation from God. That is the first warning sign. 
A new revelation. If we started out the Bridge Fellowship and I sat there on the very first Sunday and said, we're here because of a new thing, a new revelation. You have to wait on that one. Where's this guy coming from? What's this about? John Corson says, if it's new, it isn't true. I love that. For one thing, it kind of rhymes. You know, but I, I like He's right on. If it's new, it isn't true. That God has given us, the Bible says, everything that pertains to life and godliness. We have all that we need. There's not a new gospel. There's not a new approach. There's not a new way. Oh, I know we come up with them constantly. You know, there's, there's just something about the church that we love the newest way of going about things. We don't want to be archaic. We don't want to be old school. And so we're always looking for the new approach. And I don't understand why Christians continue to get buzzed about a person rather than the person, Jesus Christ. If you want to be excited about someone, be excited about Jesus. Who, by the way, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's never changing. He's not new. He's fresh. He's relevant. But He's not new. He has always been and He always will be. And He's our focus. And for the person who doesn't know Jesus, I understand. I get it. I understand being deceived by the things going on in the world when you don't know Christ. The Bible even says that the God of this world blinds the minds or blinds the eyes of the unbelieving, that they might not see or know the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I I get that. I have a hard time understanding why Christians get so easily drawn away and deceived even within our own churches, our own fellowships. We should know a little better. Why don't we? Well, we'll talk about that this morning. Christian terraforming. Terraforming from the science fiction concept of, did you see the old Star Trek movie series back with Captain Kirk as before it went on to Picard and the other, the other guys? Where they, uh, I think it was Star Trek II, if I'm right, the Genesis Project. And the whole idea was behind it. They, they came up with this device. They could fire into a dead planet and it would terraform the planet and make it living and active and, and life-worthy and life-sustaining. And of course, by the end of the movie, the planet that they terraformed was tearing itself apart and, and becoming destroyed. I think that's probably what will happen with this cult. Did you just call it a cult, Rib? I think I did. Yeah. Their website, here's a quote. Have you ever wanted to see your region changed for the kingdom of God? Nothing wrong with that. I read that and I say, yes! Absolutely! That's, that's why the church is here, Right? That's our calling. Are you ready to see cancer, mental illness, and hatred defeated? Absolutely. I am, man, I'm on board with that. I read on. Do you know Jesus as your Savior? Yes, I do. Hey, these are my people, right? If so, good news. God has revealed keys so His sons and daughters can participate in the restoration of all things. Okay. 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 We will liberate creation from the bondage of decay through a deeper understanding of love and forgiveness. Revelation 12 is being fulfilled now. And all of a sudden I found myself going, excuse me? Something's not right here. You know, the, the red flags going up the pole and flapping in the wind. You know? The alert is flashing. The robot saying, danger, Will Robinson, danger. <laughs> so I, 
So I read on. I'm going to get back to Revelation 12 in just a minute, but they say terraforming is the process by which sons and daughters of God liberate creation from the bondage of decay, Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 21. There are scriptures sprinkled all throughout this. Never quoted, but just uh, you know listed there. Because Christians, what we tend to do, right, is we see scripture and go, oh, cool, it's, it's biblical. Well, did you read it? Be careful, because what cults will often do is draw out scripture, little quotes, half a verse, list them on their websites to make it look appealing. Be sure you know the word. Accurately handle the word of truth, right? But who liberates creation? Is it the church? Or is it the Lord? I think the Bible is absolutely clear. In fact, the Bible is so clear about this. I'm going to talk forward and backward here a little bit because there's some things I'll get to and I may repeat myself. But the Bible is very clear that the world will go from bad to worse before Jesus comes and makes it right. That we are not going to build the kingdom in the world. I've talked about that before, and that's kind of obvious. And I know there are different there are different theological perspectives, different denominations teach different things about the second coming of Jesus and how it's all going to go. But I'll tell you what, if you're just taking the literal truth of Scripture, the Bible says it is not going to get better before He comes. It's going to get worse. And then He will come and make it right. He alone. And part of the problem with this Christian terraforming group is they're going around, they're coming into churches, they, they present themselves as a, as a prayer ministry. Nothing wrong with that, I'm all for it. Prayer ministry, going around and praying in, in the communities and neighborhoods, great idea, but the message is subversive. And the message is, is drawing people in, and it's doing it while at the same time twisting Scripture to mean something that it does not mean. Jesus is the liberator. Jesus is the one by whom we are free from our sin. And He is the one who will free this earth from its groanings of decay. Romans chapter 8 talks about that. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, which is so cool. (laughs) The Lord, God, says to my Lord, Jesus. Father speaking to Son. God talking to God said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The key word there is until. He says, the Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. From where? Where is He going to stretch forth His scepter from? Zion. There is something very specific about this gang that the scepter will begin. It will be in Zion. It will stretch out from Jerusalem, from Israel. See, this is where I just get going. Prophecy states Jesus will return there. And prophecy states Jesus will establish His kingdom rule there. Revelation 20. His thousand year millennial kingdom. What's that for? It fulfills all His promises to Israel. It establishes what He said He was going to establish. It does what He said He is going to do. Acts Acts 3 verse 20 says... Repent and return so your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that He may send Jesus the Christ appointed to you or for you whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from the ancient time. And they're saying that time is now. And I'm saying the problem with saying the time of restoration is now is Jesus isn't here yet. 
Another quote from their website. They say they're going to release creation into its irrevocable calling, and then they notate Romans 11.29. Well, Romans 11.29 is not about the irrevocable calling of creation. It's about the irrevocable calling of Israel. So again, you got another verse out of context. Maybe that doesn't bother you much. Maybe you hear that and go, ah, yeah, but they're just trying to support what they're doing. Exactly. They go on and say, through the impartation of authority given to us with the fulfillment of the prophecy of Revelation 12. Let me just be absolutely clear here. The authority of the leadership of the Bridge Christian Fellowship is only the authority of Jesus. I don't have any authority over you. I'm not the boss. I'm not the ruler here. I'm not the leader. I don't even like being called the senior pastor. Rick is just fine. Jesus is the authority. Jesus is the one whose word is final, whose word stands. Jesus and only Jesus. Now, let me show you something. Keep your finger there and go over to Revelation chapter 12. Since they rely so much on Revelation chapter 12 as their hallmark. Claiming that Revelation 12 is being fulfilled in this movement. Among those who consider themselves the Christian terraformers. Okay? Revelation 12 verse 1. We actually we studied this on Christmas Eve. Which was really fun. I don't know. I, I had a, got a kick out of it because it was Christmas Eve. And did I tell you this? I, I came home Christmas Eve after doing the teaching on Revelation 12 for a Christmas Eve thing. Walk in the door, and my daughter Hannah goes, "Dad, I just that was I just loved it. I love being in prophecy and and in Revelation 12. It was really cool, you know, to do that on Christmas Eve and everything. And her perhaps maybe someday I don't know if he's lucky uh, future husband." <laughs> Standing behind her goes, I thought it was a little heavy for a Christmas Eve. I said, be careful, son. Listen to this. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of twelve stars and she was with child. Bible students, who is the woman? Israel. How do you know? Because she's not the church. She's not the church? How else do you know that the woman is Israel? What? What? Twelve tribes. Scripture? What scripture? Exactly. I'm, here, I'm pushing on this for this reason. We know that Revelation 12.1 is talking about Israel because Joseph had the exact same dream in Genesis 30. Seven. You can compare the two about the stars and the sun and the moon bowing down to him. The stars, the sun, and the moon very clearly Jacob and his family, Israel. And so when John sees this same thing describing this, we let Scripture, Scripture reveal Scripture and we know exactly what's going on here. She was with child. So if the woman is Israel, who's the child? Jesus. Jesus. Well, how are you sure about the... How do you know that, Rick? Well, you read on. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and on his heads were seven diadems and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Which is an awesome teaching. Don't have time for it this morning. And the dragon... 
stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she might give birth, he might devour her child. Gang, it's not Hitler. It's the one behind uh, uh, Herod. Same, same one behind Hitler and Herod. It works either way. Satan is the dragon, right? How do you know? You don't even have to go to Isaiah. It's right there. Look a little further down. The great dragon, verse 9, was thrown down the serpent of old who was called the devil and Satan. Bible explains Bible. Scriptures interpret the Scriptures. It's all here. But you're not going to get it unless you're rightly or accurately handling the Word of Truth. And by the way, sitting and listening to a pastor one Sunday a week is not accurately handling the Word of Truth. So reading on, it says in verse 5, She, the woman, Israel, gave birth to a son, Jesus. How do we know? A male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Exactly what Isaiah prophesies, what the psalmist prophesies about. The one who rules with a rod of iron is Mashiach in the Hebrew, Messiah, Christ in the Greek, Jesus. He's the one. It's describing Jesus. And her child was caught up to God and to His throne. Jesus, after His resurrection, 40 days later, ascended. He was caught up. That word there, caught up, is harpazo. Same word that describes the catching up, the rapture of the church. Okay? Kind of cool. So he was caught up to God and to his throne. It says, Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. Now I'm throwing some prophecy at you quickly here. And if I had more time, I would take more time. But uh, 1,260 days is three and a half years. This is talking about the last half of that period of time at the end of the age called the Tribulation. Seven years of tribulation. The last three and a half years, Israel flees to a place in the wilderness where Israel is protected during those last three and a half years where the wrath of God is being poured out on a Christ-rejecting world. Revelation 6-19 through tells the whole story. Read it, study it, understand it, and know what it's talking about. Why is this so important, Rick? Well... The website once again says these sons and daughters matured talking about themselves. We matured into adulthood as we have been given great responsibility in the kingdom of God and risked their lives to ultimately produce all of the fruit we were created to. We are willing to do anything for our Father's will even if we were to sell all our belongings, give to the poor, follow Jesus if He asked us to and this has brought us to maturity. What has? Our deeds. Our actions. Our behavior. We've become mature. What are they saying? In essence, gang... And they go on and talk about this in other places on this website that the Christian terraformers are the son. They're the male child. They claim that they are the ones who were given birth and now have grown to maturity. They are the ones. They have replaced Jesus with Christian terraformers. And now it gets really serious. Because we never get in the way of Jesus. He is Lord. We are servants. The highest description, the highest title a follower of Jesus Christ can have is bondservant of Christ. That's that's what I am. I'm a bondservant. Well, they claim this for themselves. They say this is talking about us. And they say that what they're going to do then 
is restore the world. Terraform the world for God. But we're going to do it. We're going to bring about this massive restoration worldwide. And it is contrary to Scripture. As a matter of fact, the next great revelation will not be to a man. It will be in the person of Jesus. The next great revelation the world's going to see. Now the church is going to be pulled out. And seven years of tribulation will go by. And at the end of that time, Jesus Himself, Zechariah 14, will set foot on the Mount of Olives. We've talked about these things. We've studied this for years now. That Jesus returns in person, in the flesh, and sets up and establishes worldwide kingdom rule from Jerusalem. He restores the earth. He makes the kingdom what it's going to be. He ushers people into the kingdom, those who follow Him, who believe in Him at that point. Not us. How do Christians miss it? Someone comes along and says, hey, i got a great new thing. i got this new revelation from God. He's been speaking to me and He's told me these things. And we need to study these things. We need to get out and start transforming our communities under the name of terraforming. And you might say, well, Rick, it's just a name. I mean, Purpose Driven Church was just a name. The seeker-sensitive movement, that was just a name, right? I mean, there's all kinds of movements that come along and, and they just it's just creative people using words to kind of describe what they're doing. I had no problem with the Purpose Driven Church. Because honestly, if you go and get the book, Purpose Driven Church, not Purpose Driven Life, and that's fine too, but you get the book, The Purpose Driven Church, written by Rick Warren, you go back and read it, and you know what? It's biblical. It's good ideas. Now, it's, it's one way of doing things. It is not the way of doing things. But he talks about how to organize what we're called to as a church. That's fine. I have no problem with that. And I'm not talking about, you know, where's Rick Warren today? The Lord knows. But I read that book and looked at it, and, and it was like, okay, that's fine. It's not hurting it. He is. The whole point was still about Jesus. This comes along and starts to get into churches and involve people and draw them away saying, you know what, the rest of the, rest of the people in your church aren't really where you're at. See, if you join us, you're one of the sons and daughters who are, who are actually being birthed in Revelation 12 as a fulfillment of prophecy. Cults always take, and they tend to go to Revelation. They love Revelation. They love to twist it. And they will go to different passages in the Bible and they say this describes... Us. When the New Testament Scriptures talk about a specific group of people, it is the church, of which we're part. We're just one fellowship of the much larger church body. And the Lord is working through His church. I'll get to that in just a second. Ricky keeps saying, just a second, how long is it going to be? Just relax. <laughs> Let me get back to my, my thoughts here. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 20 says, To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. In other words, they are of deception. Turn over to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. Verse 6. Paul is writing and addressing an issue in the first century. But he could be addressing this very situation we're talking about right now. And by the way, this is not just a lesson opposed to Christian terraforming. 
I do believe it's a cult. But this is a message, a lesson, talking about dealing with how do we handle deception in the world? How do we deal with these things as they continue to come up? Paul says, Galatians 1.6, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. He says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. Accursed. As we've said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed. What are you saying, Paul? 2,000 years ago, Paul is saying, you have the final word. You have the gospel of Jesus Christ. If someone comes along and tries to give you a new revelation, a new twist, a new version, guess what? They are a heretic. It's not the truth. Revelation 22, verse 18. John says the following. Now remember, Christian terraforming draws right out of Revelation 12 and says it's us. It's not Israel. Even though all of Revelation 12 is a panorama of anti-Semitism and God's working and dealing with Israel. No, it's us, they say. Revelation 22.18 says, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of this book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. How do we discern this stuff? How do we know what is truth and what is deception in these days? And I'm telling you, gang, the deception's on the rise. There will be more. There will be more deception in the world as we get closer to the return of Christ. He said there would. He was clear about it. As a matter of fact, the Bible was clear that not only would there be more deception, there would be more lawlessness, there would be more more evil, there would be more wickedness, culture would be more and more opposed to the Lord, even the church would begin to waffle and become weak. That's what the Bible says we're headed into, if not in completely right now. How do we discern deception as followers of Jesus? A movement shows up. An idea. A new approach. And people get all excited. You know, over 38 years of being involved in ministry and 38 years of following the Lord in my life, I have seen movement after movement after movement after movement after movement rise up. And people go, This is the one! And then we look back ten years later and go, that wasn't the one. <laughs> Will you focus yourselves, gang? And I pray this all the time. God, help us not to be excited by a movement, but following the moving of your Spirit. Let me just stay with you, Lord. I don't have to have a special name for what we're doing. I don't have to be a new direction. How do we counter the deception? How do we know if something is false, especially when, as with this terraforming thing, there's so much Bible that's thrown out? And they do. They throw out scriptures right and left. Well, this says this, and this says this, and that's us, and this is it. And it's, it's, it's deceiving. How do you know? Three simple encouragements this morning for you. And this is Bible 101. 
I mean, you could teach this in Sunday school. It is so absolutely simple. And Leslie was telling me this last week that she heard somewhere that someone has to hear something 2,000 times before they really own it. So let me just say this again. Three very simple things God has given us to make us discerning followers of Jesus in these last days. Number one, be devoted in prayer. Be devoted in prayer. That doesn't mean just the constant before meal prayer. It doesn't mean just the prayer when your car is sliding out of control on the highway. Be devoted in prayer. And by the way, our shepherds are going to be here every Thursday night from here on out. Thursdays are devoted to prayer. Thursday nights here in the barn, and you're all welcome. We're, we're going to try and keep the first Thursday of the month for our shepherds meeting. Um, and then the second Thursday of the month, we're going to focus on prayer for the lost. Although if you have any other needs, you're welcome to come. The third Thursday, fourth Thursday, if there's a fifth Thursday, we're just going to be here every Thursday night praying. And by the way, even though the first Thursday is our shepherds meeting, if you have a pressing need, come on. Because that's primary. We're doing this because we are realizing in this season, beyond this season, at this time in the age of the world, we've got to be in connection with God. We need to be hearing what He has to say. Faith comes from hearing. And hearing by the Word of Christ. Or literally by the Word Christ. I like the way that rings. Jeremiah chapter 11. All right, we're just getting back to chapter 11. I'm just show you a couple things here. Jeremiah chapter 11, verse 1. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Well, how did Jeremiah get the word from the Lord? He heard it. He heard it. I mean, if Eli said, I got a word from Rick for you. Where would you get it? I don't know, I just made it up. Well, Rick told me. Oh, okay, so you heard it. All right. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Hear the words of this covenant. Down in verse 3. Cursed is the man who does not heed the words of this covenant. Down in verse 4. Listen to my voice. If you continue on down, verse 6. Hear the words of this covenant. At the end of verse 7, listen to my voice. Every single one of those words, listen, heed, and hear, it's all the same word in Hebrew, Shema. Shema. God says Shema, Shema, Shema. What is He saying? Well, ask a Jew today. What is the Shema? Oh, the Shema, that's Deuteronomy 6.4. Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear Shema, O Israel. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Hear. Listen to my voice. Is God playing games with us when He says, listen to my voice? Listen to my voice. I'm not really going to speak to you, but listen to my voice. You won't ever really hear me, but listen to my voice. Over and over and over in the Scriptures, God says, Shema. Shema. And we have forgotten how to listen. I think we've got a huge listening problem. Israel, the reason why Judah was in such a mess as Jeremiah comes as a prophet is they weren't listening anymore. They couldn't hear the word of the Lord anymore. How do you listen? I'll show you something in just a minute here. The problem with devotion to prayer is a lot of Christians stop with one or two prayers about a topic, thinking they have the answer and move right on. I've heard so many times, well, I asked the Lord this, and He didn't say no. 
Great. <laughs> but I heard the Lord say yes. Really? Okay. Well, Scott Norville claims that God told him to start terraforming. The Lord told me to do this. How do you counter that? Well, God told me this. Oh, well, it must be true. God told you. How do you know? How do you know it was the Lord who really spoke those words and not... How do you know it wasn't a demon? How do you know it wasn't a false spirit? How do you know it wasn't your own head? How do you know? Jeremiah chapter eight or chapter eleven verse eight says, Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked each one in the stubbornness of his evil heart. Therefore I brought on them all the words of this covenant which I commanded them to do, but they did not. Now check this out. The people are given the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You should love the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your heart, with all your might. You know what the next verse says? Deuteronomy 6, verse 6. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. How do you know that God is speaking to you in your devotion in prayer? Number one way. Secondly, be diligent in the Word. You be diligent in the Word. Everything we hear or think we're hearing or believe is of the Lord, you test it by His Word. You go to His Word. And by the way, if, if you're one of those who says, I don't think I've ever really heard the Lord. I, I know you've talked about that. I know Les has talked about that. Listening to the Lord and, and hearing the Lord speak and listening to His leading. I, I, don't, I don't know that I've ever really heard Him. Let me give you the best way to begin to listen and then to continue to listen to the Lord. We hear God best when we listen by His Word. You want to know the Lord? You want to hear the Lord speak? Then you get in His Word. And I've said before, the more familiar you are with His Word, the more familiar you're going to be with His voice. And you're going to know who it is speaking. Be diligent, Paul says. To present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. I, let me tell you this very personally. I hear God best. Rick hears God best when I am studying His Word. And about all kinds of things. Cheryl and I can be praying over an issue about one of our kids, as we often do. And I can be in Tuesday Bible study, studying and preparing for Wednesday night's teaching here, somewhere in Jeremiah, and I'll know exactly what we need to do with one of our kids. And God will direct me. And sometimes it's by a verse. Other times, it's just, He says, Rick, you need to do this. Oh, okay. You hear God best when you're in His Word. I've learned over the years, it's not word searches, it's not commentary, it's not Logos Bible study software, which, by the way, is great. It's not those things that matter most in studying His Word. It is a dynamic dialogue with the Lord. And it's amazing to me how often, when I am praying and studying the Word, how immediately reflective it is of what's happening right now in this area or in our fellowship. And some of you have come up to me on a Sunday, on a Wednesday, in fact, it happened this morning, come up and said, man, that is exactly what I needed to hear today. How did you know? And I've told you before, I didn't. I don't. If not for the Word of God before us here, I'm a clueless wonder. Ask my wife. 
I don't know what's going on. I'm serious. I'm not, oh, I'm such a student of culture. No, I'm not. I really, I'm not. I don't know these things. Except that which God says, talk about this. Focus on this. Some do learn to hear the Lord in dreams and in visions. Oh, now we're getting into a weird area, Rick. No, it's not strange. It's Scripture. Acts chapter 2, verse 17. It shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my Spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, which is how we know who's young and who's old, and they're hearing from the Lord. (laughs) Even on my bond slaves. Oh, there it is. My bond slaves. It's my title. Bond slave. Bond sir. Both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. There is legitimacy in hearing the word of the Lord in visions. In dreams. Sometimes you receive what the Bible calls a word of wisdom. Or a word of knowledge. 1 Corinthians 12.8 Among all the spiritual gifts... Paul is laying out several and he says, to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit. To another, the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit. And there are other spiritual gifts and my friends, these are legitimate, fair, they help us hear. And we apply those with the sound doctrine of the Word of God. Here's one of the reasons why I get my back up when a cult or some kind of strange movement comes to town, especially when it's charismatic in nature. What concerns me is not only that there are well-meaning Christians who go running off after this kind of thing and become deceived, but there are also well-meaning Christians who when they see this kind of thing run in the opposite direction and start to deny the work of the Holy Spirit. And that is just as bad. God has given us, by His, by His perfect order, He has given us His Word to ground us. He has given us His Spirit to invigorate us, to give us life. And it is both that we need, and if we deny one or the other, we'll get off track. You want to stay on track, you need His Word, and you've got to have the power of His Spirit in your life. It's not an either-or. It never has been. It is both and. Look at the dynamic dialogue between the Lord and Jeremiah. Chapter 11, verse 18. Skip down and look at this. Jeremiah is giving this prophecy and all of a sudden he says this very personal. He says, Moreover, the Lord made it known to me and I knew it. And then you showed me their deeds. What deeds? I was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. I did not know that they had devised plots against me. He goes on to describe that God has told him, the Lord told Jeremiah, there's a group of people plotting for your life. They want to kill you. Jeremiah did not know this on his own. He didn't stumble upon it. He says very clearly, the Lord made it known to me. Oh, yeah, well, he was one of the prophets of old. Yeah, and the Lord said, even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit and they shall prophesy. You're no different than Jeremiah. Jeremiah was just a guy who committed his ways to the Lord. That's it. And he heard from the Lord. He was aware from the Lord of this plot against his life. He's already dialoguing with the Father. He's already in a conversing relationship with God. He's devoted in prayer and he's diligent in the Word. How do you know he was diligent in the Word, Rick? Look over at chapter 15, verse 16. We'll talk more about this next week. Jeremiah says, Your words were found and I ate them. 
And your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I have been called by your name, O God of hosts. I ate your words. He ate them up. Jeremiah is the one in the front row in Bible study with the Bible open and pen going. He's going, yeah, this tastes great. He was devoted in prayer and he was diligent in the Word. And because of this, Jeremiah had a dynamic relationship with God. A conversing relationship that was interactive and real. And my friends, there is no reason why any of us shouldn't have the same relationship today. Don't deny yourself the possibility that you really can walk in the Spirit of Christ. Know the Word of the Lord. Rick, the Bible is just so big. I'd rather just come and hear you say, well, you do so to your own peril. First hour when I asked the question, where do we find out that Israel, that the woman is Israel in Revelation 12? And someone in the back said, because you told us. Exactly my point. That is never a basis for believing anything in the Scripture because some guy said so, whether it's Scott Norville or Rick Crawford or Chuck Smith or John Hagee or Rick Warren or Ron Crawford, my brother, don't ever listen to him. I'm kidding. I love Ron. Diligent in the Word. Devoted in prayer. Speaking to my brother Ron, he calls me last... Sunday actually sent me a text. And on the text it just said, if you had one thing to tell your leaders at your church fellowship, what would it be this afternoon? And I was confused by the way he wrote it this afternoon. He just wanted to know immediately without me thinking about it. He just wanted me to shoot back a text and tell him. But I didn't understand, so all I said was, huh. So Ron goes to his leadership core last Sunday night having a training time and, and says, yeah, my brother says the most important thing he could tell his leadership is, huh? <laughs> Thanks, bro. I came back to the text later on and, and I'm like, oh, and I texted back. Prayer. Prayer. Well, I got a text about an hour after that from Ron. And he said, Oh, i got to talk to you about something. And so we had breakfast on Tuesday, and Tuesday we sat down and go, what do you want to talk to me about? And he goes, I didn't hear back from you until after I got home from my training. You know what I told my people was the most important thing that they need to know and do? Prayer. Prayer. Ron was right. We have got to be a people in prayer who are diligent in the Word, devoted to prayer. If you want to be able to discern the deceit that is going on, and dang, it is heavy. It is thick. It's in the world all around us. It's not just culture. I'm tired of culture, by the way. I am sick of what culture is doing. I am fed up by our culture. Let me ask you, are you are you getting worn out? I mean, how many people are just exhausted? There was a day in America when you could walk down the street on your way to church and everybody else would be walking down the street on the way to church. And there might be different denominations, you know, the Baptists and the Methodists and the Hoosits, and they're all all going and, you know, trying to make sure they, they get to the restaurant before the other church let out. I mean, but it was it was just kind of the way it was. And there was an understanding of what was true and what was moral and what was right. And our culture is just non-stop. Non-stop. 
when you have it coming from without, it's bad enough. When you have it coming from within, sometimes it gets almost unbearable. I want to offer you one more encouragement, actually, this morning. And something to recognize here. After Jeremiah is alerted to the devious plot against his life, he cries out for justice and protection. He says, and I love verse 20, O Lord of hosts who judges righteously, who tries the feelings and the heart. This is chapter 11, verse 20. Let me see your vengeance on them, for to you I have committed my cause. That's the right thing to say. To you, Lord, I have committed my cause. Not to some new movement. Not to my church. Don't commit your cause to the bridge. What a major mistake that would be. You commit your cause to Christ. And prayerfully, we're all doing that. So as a fellowship, we're moving in the direction of Jesus. You commit your cause to Him. And therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the man of Anatot, who seek your life, saying, Do not prophesy in the name of the Lord, so that you will not die at our hands. So that's what they were saying about Jeremiah. And he says, Behold, I'm going to punish them. The Lord goes on to tell how He's going to punish the men of Anatot. By the way, Anatot. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 1 tells us that's his hometown. Jeremiah was born and raised in Anatot, in the land of Benjamin. A priestly city, a Levitical city. And God says, this plot against your life is coming from your hometown. But it gets worse. So Jeremiah hears that. But God says, I'm going to deal with him. I'll take care of it. I got your back, Jeremiah. And then from verses 1 through about the end of 4, Jeremiah whines. He gets all whiny. He starts to say, after God promises to protect him and take care of him, Jeremiah starts to complain to the Lord about the injustice of it all. He says, Lord, wickedness prospers. That's not fair. How come I'm out here committing myself to your cause and all these wicked people are getting all kinds of stuff and their lives are going well and they're successful and they're fruitful and, it's, and I look at that and I say, it's not fair, Lord. And you know what? how the Lord answers, it's not fair? He doesn't. What He says is, have faith in Me. I am just. I am righteous. I will make everything right. All you have to do is trust Me. And listen to then what God says to Jeremiah after throwing out this injustice, injustice. And God says, verse 5, if you have run with footmen and they have tired you out, then how can you compete with horses? Isn't that great? Jeremiah, this is only the first plot against your life. And you're already tired? He goes on, he says, if you fall down in the land of peace, how will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? The first thing God says to Jeremiah is, well, let me encourage you, son, it's going to get worse. It's going to get much worse. This is going to be the hardest road that you've ever walked. And the road will not get easier as you go. It will get harder. One of the things that concerns me about this Christian terraforming movement is it is saying exactly what the false prophets were saying in the days of Judah, in the days of Jeremiah. Peace, peace, when there is no peace. It is a false declaration. We're going to change the world. We're going to liberate the world. We're going to make all things new. No, we're not. And as we don't, all we end up is just crushed and discouraged. It's a lie. Peace, peace. There is no peace. Now, don't get me wrong. There's peace in Jesus. 
there's always peace in Jesus. And no matter how hard the road gets, there is a contentment there you can't find anywhere else. But then he says in verse 6, one more thing, just to encourage and help out Jeremiah, for even your brothers and the household of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you, even they have cried aloud after you, do not believe them, although they may say nice things to you. By the way, Jeremiah, your hometown's against you, it's going to go from bad to worse, and your family's in on it. Have a nice day. What kind of encouragement is that, Lord? What are you saying to Jeremiah, Lord? In essence, this. The race ain't over yet. The race ain't over yet. Don't crumble to culture. Don't get sidetracked by false teachers promising peace and prosperity. You're going to end up winded by their deception. How do we stay on track? I had lunch with Clark Donnell on Tuesday of this last, Thursday of this last week. And Clark was bringing up, and you know he's on the board at Whitworth University. And he was talking about the challenge there right now and the, the attempt to try and redefine marriage in the student handbook at Whitworth University, which is a Christian college, long, deep roots in, in the Presbyterian Church going way, way back. And because in the Presbyterian Church of the USA, the move is toward the broad-scale acceptance of homosexual marriage, now, of course, that's affecting universities and colleges and all that. So we're talking about this. We've been praying for Clark and talking about this attempt to redefine marriage. Seven Presbyterian pastors are on this board. And at this big meeting that they had in Arizona last week, seven pastors, all seven of them, agreed and recognized that God's definition of marriage in the Bible is one man and one woman for one life. Four of those pastors went on to say that they still feel like they should change the definition in the student handbook on the Whitworth campus. What? Clark shared that, and I just I sat back in the chair and I said, are you kidding me? And ever since Thursday, I've been thinking about why? Why would these pastors do that? And, and I don't know their hearts, but I can only suppose that they're just weary. They're just tired of the battle. Maybe they're like the, the pastors in, in this, uh, this article, which is, I love our media. It's in the... Um, well, because they speak such truth, you know. <laughs> because in the, in the religion section of the Skagit Valley Herald, evangelical churches refine their messages on gay issues. You know what's happening in the church right now? The clear teaching of the Word of God is getting refined. Because that's where our culture has gone. One quote, I won't read all this, just one quick quote from this. One gentleman who is actually... Uh, David Key, uh, Senior Director of Baptist Studies at Emory University. Okay, The reality is, when all of society is moved in a certain direction, you just have to be silent. No, you don't. And as a matter of fact, if we stay silent about issues, whether they're issues of morality, any issues of truth, if we stay silent, we lose. The pressure from culture is intense. The pressure even coming up within of deception within the church. And, and there are days, gang, as a pastor myself, I say, I just don't want to deal with this stuff. I don't want to talk. I didn't want to get up this morning and talk about a cult. And we get tired. And we get exhausted. And the gun goes off and we're out of the blocks. But before we get to the first turn, we're just going, I don't know if I can make it around the track one more time. I just don't know if I can do this. And I'm so impressed with how God responds to Jeremiah in that same place. I think Jeremiah is already exhausted and God says, look dude, it's my translation. 
it's going to get worse. I'm with you, but it's going to get worse. What is God calling on Jeremiah for? Endurance. Perseverance. The third thing to note, be devoted in prayer. Be diligent in the Word of God. And number three, be determined in restraint. Be determined in restraint. Listen to the words of Jesus, Matthew 24.10. At that time many will fall away and will betray one another and will hate one another. Many false prophets will rise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. Right, Jake? Jake shot me an email this last week. Several things that he, would, that he had seen in the news, things going on in culture. And he's like, Rick, what do you think is behind this? What's going on here? And I shot him back, Matthew 24, 12. Just because I really didn't want to talk to him. I, no. I saw that one verse. Listen again. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. Does that sound like the church terraforms the world? No. The world is going to get worse. And the only reason I can say that with a smile on my face is I know where I'm going. And I know who's in charge. And I know what the end is. And it's glorious. But before the end comes, it is not going to be us who rejuvenate the planet. 2 Timothy 3.13, Paul says, Evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, didn't want to claim that he was a brother of Jesus, half-brother, so he said, I'm a bondservant. He says in his letter, Jude verse 3, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, see, that was what he wanted to write about, he said, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once all for all handed down to the saints. And Jude goes on to spend his entire little letter about contending for the faith. About standing for the truth because the days are evil and will only get worse. Paul, talking about the rise of Antichrist and truly the spread of the world's domination of evil, makes this statement. 2 Thessalonians 2.6 And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. Who is he who now restrains? I'm hearing church and Holy Spirit and you're both right. The Holy Spirit is the great restraint of evil in the world today. Take the Spirit out of this world and evil would flood the world. The Holy Spirit works in the church if the church will not quench the Holy Spirit. If we will allow God's Spirit to work, which sounds a little funny to me if we will allow His Spirit. But He set it up that way. He said, I want you to accept My Spirit. I want you to welcome My Spirit. I want you to walk in My Spirit. And if you don't quench My Spirit, great things will happen. The Spirit restrains the tide of evil and He does it through and in the church. The connection between the church and the Holy Spirit is absolutely profound and it's clear. Read the book of Acts if you want to see that. He who restrains, the restraining influence, until it is taken out of the way. The church is going to be taken out, caught up, raptured. And when that happens... The Spirit will go with the church. 
And this world will be back the way it was before Christ came the first time without the Spirit restraining the tide of evil. Now I'm telling you that for this reason. This whole idea of restraint is exhausting. It is challenging. The one who restrains always has to put forth more effort than the one who's pushing against. You know, like my belt. (laughs) Hang in there, buddy. Be the restraining influence. Hold back the tide, you know? And it hit me this week. I'm talking to Clark, and I'm like, no wonder this is so tiring, because part of our job here in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus is we're pushing back against this growing tide of evil in the world. This growing deception. Brothers and sisters, to push back and to do so effectively and to stay on track, we have got to be devoted in prayer and we've got to be diligent in the Word. I told you it was Bible 101. But our devotion in prayer and our diligence in the Word is far more than sometimes we think. I, I, people open the Bible because they're interested in that particular book. You know, Oh, the women's Bible study is doing James? I've always wanted to study James. I'll go to that. You should be there no matter what's being taught. As, I mean, as long as it's Scripture. You should be there because the Bible is being cracked open. Period. Our Bibles should be the most worn out book in our houses because we're constant in them. Because we're dialoguing with the Father. Because this is a dynamic life, and as we get down to the last of the last days, as I believe we are in, it is going to be absolutely critical that followers of Jesus Christ know His Word and know His voice. Otherwise, we will be deceived. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, Hebrews 12 tells us, Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That is where the race will end. That is where we are called to go. And until then, as God says in Jeremiah 11.4, listen to my voice.